Good morning. Can you hear me? Great. Well, it's great to be with you this morning, speaking to you. Uh, I've been so encouraged uh, this morning following the, uh, the live feed and seeing the comments as they come in and the words as they've come in. And over the last few weeks, it's been really encouraging to hear how God has been speaking to us, even as we've been meeting from afar. And so uh, I've been blessed by that. And actually, as we read Scripture, we see again and again the importance and the significance of the church as a body when we meet together and God is with us, how he uses us to strengthen one another. And that remains true in our absence and in our distance. We are called to strengthen and encourage one another and to be filled with the power and the presence of God. I was so encouraged a couple of weeks ago as Steve spoke to us on God's presence and the promise and the invite that comes with that. God is with you and he's inviting you to come and know him and be with him. And as we do that as a church, what happens is we come and we gather where two or more are gathered. There I am. And so we gather expecting God to meet with us and expecting to be used by him. Of course, at the moment, we're not able to gather. <laughs> you, you're probably aware. We're not able to gather in the way that we would like to. And so I have, and I know that many of us will have been feeling the, the, the disconnect and the, the absence of that. And, and actually, in many ways, <clears throat> this last season, even 2020, will have felt to many of us as a season full of disappointment and hardship, a year marked by pain and loss. And it's actually those two things that I want us to look at this morning. So the, when we come to the passage that I'm about to read, I want us to see how the, the power and the presence of God uh, that Steve spoke about two weeks ago rests on us, works for us and through us, precisely in these hard times and in our weakness and our struggles. So our weakness and through our suffering, God will display his presence and his power. So if you've got your Bible, why don't you turn with me? I'm going to be reading from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'm going to be going from verse 1 to 10. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 through to 10. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. Though if, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming 
conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should be leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect or is completed in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, just to give us a little context to this passage, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, the church that he's previously planted. And he's written to them before, but now he's writing to them to encourage them in their faith and to answer some questions about uh, their faith and about living for Jesus that they have for him. But also, he wants to address some strange ideas and some bad habits and practices that have crept into the life of the church since Paul left them. They've developed, we see as we look at both 1 and 2 Corinthians, these two letters to this church, we see that these guys have developed strange ideas around what it means to be a successful Christian. So these guys are a spirit-filled community like us at Jubilee, we, know, we believe that God is with us. We believe that he speaks through us. So they're experiencing signs and wonders. They're seeing God come and speak to them through the prophetic and through tongues and interpretation. They're seeing these things. And Paul wants to write to them to say, I want to encourage you in this. I want to encourage you to continue to pursue those things and to press into the presence of God and expect great things from him. He says, I want you to know, I, don't want you, I want you to be not ignorant of spiritual gifts, I want you to be eagerly desiring them. And so he teaches them how to pursue those things in a healthy way, and he gives them high expectations of what happens when a church does that. You know, people will come and they will fall on their face when they hear the, God's prophetic voice coming in, and they'll say, God is in this room, God is amongst these people. Don't you want that for us as Jubilee? I, I know I do. <laughs> I want that. And Paul wants that for the Corinthians. But whilst that's happening, these guys are pursuing spiritual gifts. What's also happening is this weird idea of successful Christianity has crept in. So that some people are disqualifying others or disqualifying themselves for what they see as weakness or lesser gifts or less flashy ministries or sufferings or pain. We can fall into the trap of thinking that successful Christian living is all about living in a perpetual Christian high, spiritual high. Everything's going right for me. There's no bumps in the road. There's no uh, hurt. There's no pain. God is just solving all of my problems before they even arrive. And that seems to be where the Corinthians are. And so it's into this misunderstanding of success and power and giftedness that Paul writes that famous verse that we, many of us will know of the body. You know, just because one person's a hand and another person's a foot doesn't make the one more important than the other. Just because one gift gets a stage doesn't mean that that gift is more important than that gift. Or that that person should say, I don't belong here because I'm weak and I'm, I'm not like you. I'm not articulate like you're articulate. Or one person should say, I am the thing. I'm where Christianity peaks. Paul is addressing that and he is pushing right back against this misunderstanding. 
No one is inferior to anyone else. And if, the whole, if one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. And so whilst Paul has addressed this in his first letter, by the time we get to this point in his second letter, where we are today, this warped thinking is clearly still an issue. This time, there are certain people who have come to the Corinthians who are claiming to be super apostles. And the church is completely taken in by it. Super apostles. Wow. We've only had apostles up till now. And here they are, flashy, squeaky clean super apostles. And they've reached the point where some of them are completely taken in by these guys and even to the point of starting to reject Paul and his ministry. They look at Paul and they say, Paul comes to us covered in scars and bruises and with some teeth missing and in poverty. These guys, look at them. They're wealthy. They're clean. Do I want to follow the guy who gets beaten up wherever he goes or do I want to follow these guys? And so they begin to reject Paul. And so in this passage that we just read, Paul has just been defending his own ministry as an apostle He's saying, what I have suffered, I suffered for you, so that you would experience the power of God and know the good news of Jesus. I've been shipwrecked and beaten up because I've been taking this gospel to people like you. And so Paul is wanting to flip this mindset on its head. Actually, the suffering and the, the, the pain and the apparent weakness is the means by which the gospel has reached you. And is not something to be despised. And Paul is reluctant to enter into a bragging contest with these guys. Although he has reason to brag, he says. He talks about his uh, experience, his revelations, his meetings with Jesus. He wants them to see that what he's holding is authentic. But he doesn't want them to think that, wow, Paul is what it's all about. So he very, very quickly goes from talking about his revelation and his, the greatness of what he's seen to talking about his weakness and his failings. Because he wants to make it clear that what he does, he does not do in his own strength. It is very possible to build and to do stuff in our own strength. As we look through history, we see some impressive figures. We see people who have seemed to have accomplished great things. Paul says... That's not how the church gets built. This gets built through a posture of heavy leaning. We see throughout Scripture that the normal way of operating as a Christian is not strength to strength, but in weakness, leaning on God. And it's this, it is in this that the power of God is displayed and made known. There's a verse in Song of Songs that I keep coming back to myself where you know, this picture, this love poem, this picture of a man and a woman who are in love. And this man and woman, they are, uh, as all marriage is meant to be, an image of God and his love for his people. And there's this picture, this moment in the poem where the crowd looking at uh, the couple say, who's this coming out of the desert? And who's that she's leaning on? Who's this coming out of the desert leaning on her lover? This woman is working, walking at such a posture at such an angle that people can't look at her except and without, without seeing um, God, who she's leaning on. And that, Paul's saying, is the posture of a Christian. Not in strength, in strength, in strength, 
but somebody who leans heavily on God and is dependent on him. And so Paul talks about this thorn in his flesh and how he's prayed to God, take it away, take this thorn away. Now, we don't know what this thorn was. It could have been a physical thing. It might have been he was in pain physically. He might have been living with sickness or disease. It might have been that something's undoing his work or there's a frustration somewhere else in his life. Whatever it is, he refers to it as this thorn in my flesh. It is painful. But what the thorn isn't doing is making him weak. The thorn is exposing his weakness. And so he rightly, you know, in hindsight, he looks back and he says, this was given to me by God. This thing that is painful and uncomfortable, this has been given to me by God to stop me from becoming conceited and so that I would lean in that way on him. It was given for my sake and to glorify God, as we'll see. But in that moment, and he, he responds in a way that is right for us to respond when we're in pain. He goes to God and say, Lord, would you take this away? I don't want to be weak. I don't want to be in pain. Take this away from me. And Jesus' response is amazing. He says this, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus doesn't take Paul's thorn, his pain, his weakness, away from him. Now, as much as I want to encourage you, and that really is the point of what I want to bring today, and as much as Paul is trying to encourage the Corinthians, I want to say, you know, there's a big part of what he's saying here. I want to say, God is not your fairy godmother to swoop down and to flick a wand and suddenly you shall go to the ball. All your problems are solved. Your pain, your, your discomfort is gone. Uh, if this is how we think about God, not only have we misunderstood a huge amount of what the Bible says about suffering and pain, but we also miss the beauty and the glory and the wonder of what Jesus is bringing to Paul right here in this passage. We miss out on those things, and we miss out on what Paul then later says, I'm going to boast about this. If we turn God into someone who's just going to come down, or we pull out of our pocket and he's going to solve our problems, if that's what God becomes to you, you will miss the power of what Paul is saying. So immediately, Jesus takes Paul's attention away from his situation, away from the difficulty of his circumstances, and towards him. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Take your eyes off your pain and your problems and look to me and see my sufficiency, how completely I have served you and loved you. You are now a child of God. You belong to me. You're loved by me. You're, you're with me. My grace is sufficient for you and you're going to be with me in all eternity. Paul, I didn't pick you because you were strong or because you didn't have weaknesses or a thorn in your flesh. I picked you because I loved you and I have great purposes for you into all eternity. But this isn't simply a count your blessings moment for Paul. There's an element of that, you know, as his perspective shifts, you know, as Paul sees again, this is what God has done for me on the cross. I've been forgiven. I've been set free. 
I can enter into wonderful new life. But that's not all Jesus is doing for him. If it was a count your blessings moment, it might lead Paul into worship, you know, glorifying God for all he's done. But I don't think it would lead Paul to boast about his weaknesses. You see, Paul doesn't just go, God is amazing despite my weaknesses. He begins to boast in his weaknesses. So Jesus is doing more here than just changing uh, where Paul is looking, although he is doing that. Now, nor, is Paul, nor is Jesus simply saying, get some perspective, Paul. Although there's something here of that, definitely. And elsewhere in Scripture we see, you know, Paul says, for I consider the suffering of this present age not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. That's Romans 8.18. And then earlier in the letter, uh, Paul refers to his sufferings, his beatings as light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. And so there is a, there is a moment of perspective shift and counting your blessings, but there is more than that. And there is, there's real and powerful truth in that, but Jesus is about to reveal here to Paul why his grace is sufficient, why it's enough, and why it on its own is sufficient for, to meet Paul's needs in that moment. He says, my grace is, is right now, not just in the future will be, my grace is right now sufficient for you. Why? For, he says, for, because my power is made perfect in weakness. So, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. He's, Jesus is about to show Paul, and Paul is about to show the Corinthians, and I'm about to show us, something about how the power of God works to uh, mean that it is, the grace of God is sufficient for us in our weakness because he's going to display his power through it. So Jesus is about to show that to Paul. So it's possible to limit the meaning of this passage to despite, as I've said. So we can read this and we can say, uh, God is strong despite my weakness. And again, there's some truth in that. There is strength in that. But I don't think that's the fullness of what, what Paul is saying here and, being, and showing us here. Because Paul, again, he, he boast, ends up boasting in his weakness. Now, despite doesn't quite cut it. The world wants power and wealth and high position and comfort, comfortable life. And that's where the Corinthians have fallen into that trap. And we could very easily do the same. We could want a comfortable life more than we want the power of God. And if that happens, then it changes the way that we view and pursue God, his presence and his power. But there is something else going on here. Psalm 8 says this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name above all the earth. God, you are great. You are highly exalted. You are the greatest thing there is. You are the ultimate reality. Your name is above every name. You have set your glory above the heavens. And then this dramatic shift. Out of the mouth of babies 
and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. I don't know if you've noticed this. Babies are quite needy and they cry a lot. I was talking to uh, Dan just before the meeting. Babies, they're needy. They need a lot of attention. And they are hardly the image of strength. And yet God, who is above all things, he is the ultimate reality and the ultimate picture of strength and power, reigns over all things. He can win this battle in whatever way he chooses, and he chooses the cryings and the coos and the goos of a baby to overturn armies. The psalmist goes on. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers... infinite stars, the work of God's fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place. And again, this dramatic shift. What is man? What am I that you are mindful of me? Or son of man that you care for him? Have you ever seen those videos uh, on YouTube where you just see earth and then it zooms out and zooms out and zooms out until you see the sun and then the earth is just a speck and it just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going and you end up feeling very very small well the psalmist has reached that point feeling very very small and he says this what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor you have given him dominion over the works of your hands Why have you given this thing dominion over the stars? (laughs) You have put all things under his feet. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Jesus quotes this actually when he comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. The children are singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. The Savior has come. The Son of David has come. And the scribes come to Jesus and say, can you shut them up? And Jesus says, have you not read Psalm 8? This is how I work. This is, this is how I operate. And of course, this power that we see of God working through weakness is most perfectly displayed in the cross. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach, the cross, to save those who believe. Jews, they want powerful signs and wonders. And Greeks, they want carefully constructed arguments. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who have been called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. If you've spoken to a non-Christian about your faith, you might have come across this. Why, why should the answer to all the world's problems, to war in, in the nations, to sickness in my home, why should the answer to that problem be a man naked, bleeding and dying on an ugly cross? How can that be the answer? It's foolishness to them. It's weakness to them. In fact, in the first century, actually one of the oldest images we have of Jesus is a bit of graffiti on a Roman wall that is making fun of him. 
It's just saying, who is this? Is this your God being crucified in this ugly way? Is this your God? That's ridiculous. Paul says, no, no, the power of the cross is in foolishness and in its weakness. And Paul recognizes that the power of preaching and that is the cross, and the power of the cross is its weakness. And so he says, I came to preach the cross, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. I came in weakness and trembling, so that the cross would not be emptied of its power. When I get up and preach, and when any of us operate in any of our gifts, we make a conscious decision. Do I want to be seen as wise or spiritual or clever? Or do I want people to see the power of God? Paul's saying that they are contrary to one another. Actually, your weakness will display the glory of God. And it is incredibly freeing. If some of you this morning are sat at home and you're feeling weak, feeling exhausted, feeling spent after this season, still feeling the hurts and the pains of what we're in. Or perhaps you feel like, I can't possibly add anything to this. I can't bring anything to bear. I can't add anything to Jubilee or what Jubilee's doing or the call that's on us as a church. What if I look silly? What if I make a mistake? And the answer to that is, great. (laughs) Come and make yourself look stupid and make God look great. For his power is made perfect in your weakness. And out of the mouth of babies, these needy, crying babies, enemies will be overturned. And he will have all the glory. And so Paul responds when he receives this. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. As the answer to he, as, when that comes as the answer to his prayer, he responds and he understands it. His weakness, humiliating and painful as it is, as it might feel, they are not obstacles to the power of God. They are not contrary to receiving the power and the, uh, the presence of God. In fact, they serve him as a reminder of his own weakness, that heavy leaning. And they cause him to recognize his need to lean into Jesus. And more than that, they create, Jesus says, the condition by which the fullness and the, of the power and the presence of God rests on Paul, on us, and on us as a church. When we understand this, we don't despise our weaknesses or our sufferings. Because we recognize them to be the means by which God will work for us and through us. And he will get all the glory. And it's this that leads Paul to boast, literally revel in, glory in his weakness. Look at me. Look, at my, look how weak I am. Look how weak I am. Because, he says... So that the power of God would rest on me. That rest there is literally, in the Greek, it means tent or camp. And it's sort of Paul pointing back to, uh, in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, where Moses met face to face with God. He had to come out with a veil over his face because the people were scared. 
fact that uh, Steve was speaking to us about two weeks ago. That presence, Paul's saying, is experienced in my suffering. That face-to-face with God is experienced there. That tabernacle, tent of meeting experience is met, is experienced there in the midst of suffering. And so Paul is content to suffer for the sake of Christ. And just one last observation as the band uh, come back up. Paul's suffering comes alongside his exceedingly great revelations, these incredible experiences with God. And Paul wants us to see that and to feel the significance of that. He doesn't want the Corinthians to become fair-weather Christians who are excited when we can gather together and jump up and down and raise their hands in the air and, yes, God's really here. He wants the Corinthians to know the presence of God in suffering. He wants them to have a deeper understanding of God's power than one that will just come when things are good and go when things are bad. You know, Jesus tells that story, doesn't he? The parable of the sower. And in there, there are some, uh, some seeds that take root and look like they're growing, but as soon as the weather changes, they're gone. They die. Paul says, I don't want you to be that. I want you to have an understanding of the power of God that is rooted deeper, that can use your weakness. Not just despite your weakness, but can use it for your good and for the good of the body. And so I just want us to pray. Just close your eyes where you are. Lord, many of us have been in a hard season. Maybe some of us are still feeling like they're just dragging along rock bottom. God, I pray that we would feel the power and the significance of what Paul is feeling here. That we would know the presence of our God. Father, that we would be led to boast in our weakness so that you would display your power. God, I pray. I pray for those of us who who need to be given a new perspective, as the Corinthians did, on the power of God. I pray for those of us who need to realize that God isn't waiting for us to have our lives together and to be slick, squeaky clean Christians before he uses us. God, I pray that we would know that. God is saying right now to you, in your weakness, in your weakness, in your suffering, I will use you. I will be working for you and through you. James can say in his letter to the churches, count it all joy, brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Lord, I pray that we would know that as we come now to worship you again. Amen.